in their search for the virus, they, um, they were aborting fetuses and butchering them. He put a list of medications on the, at the end of that blog post on that got a lot of attention. And he put things on there like aspirin and Tums and Preparation H. The most preposterous of the bunch, though, was Tums, neonatal infant formula. What they did to develop that was horrifying because we have cosmetics out there that say no animals were harmed by this product. Okay, why can't we have no human beings were harmed? Hello and welcome to Living a Culture of Life podcast by Human Life International. I'm your host, Colleen, and I'm joined today by Jose Trasancos. Welcome. And you are the director of Children of God for Life. Is that what your official position is? Uh, that's correct. I guess I've, uh, the title on the paperwork is uh, CEO and chairman of the board. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're a small shop. <laughs> Can you then just explain to your listeners how, because I know that Debbie founded that organization. So can you explain how you got involved and what your organization actually does? I, um, uh, yeah, it's an interesting story. Um, our connection with uh, Debbie Vintage goes back to uh, about 2006, 2007. Um, my wife actually reached out to her because we had, uh, we were in the middle of growing our family. Uh, we, have, we have seven children <clears throat> and the issue of vaccinations came up. And my wife is one to research everything. She's very thorough, and um, you know she's very concerned about anything that has to do with the safety and well-being of our children. And um, she came across Debbie Vintage's name in an online search, so she reached out, made contact, um, uh, got the information that she was looking for. And we discussed it, we made our decisions, and we moved on. But she kept in touch with Debbie over the years, um, and. Uh, Three years ago, uh, Debbie was thinking about retiring, and Debbie wanted to make sure that the organization went to folks of like mind, similar inclination, um, and would take it and would take it seriously. So she contacted my wife, and um, originally, what she wanted to do was to move it to the diocese of Tyler. Um, my wife was working for the diocese of Tyler at that point in time. And um, Tyler, Texas. Uh, it, uh, Tyler, Texas. Uh, yeah, we're, we're located in Tyler, Texas, or in the Tyler area. Um, but uh, we discussed that a little bit, and having it be a formal part of the diocese um, it seemed like it had more problems than problems solved. Uh, it would become then a part of a larger organization that would make it more difficult for them to plan uh, what. Um, what Children of God for Life does is very different than what a church organization would do. Uh, so uh, we decided that we would take it on individually. <clears throat> and at that, so we did the paperwork. We redomesticated Children of God for Life from Florida, where Debbie lives, to Texas, where we live. Um, and the rest is history. At that point in time, I was semi-retired, uh, kind of sort of retired. Uh, now, not in the least. Yeah, it's hard to retire when you work for organizations like that. So can you explain for our listeners what Children of God for Life actually does? Uh, Children of God for Life is, uh, we, we changed the mission a little bit because Children of God for Life, prior to, um, uh, prior to us becoming formally involved, was focused on um, principally vaccines. Uh, 
and we wanted to broaden the scope a little bit and deal with uh, elements of aborted fetal tissue in, you know, broadly speaking, science and commerce. Uh, so that's our, our approach is a fairly wide one at this point in time. Um, we, we look at vaccines, certainly, and we can talk about why vaccines become such an important issue in a, in, in a moment. Um, but we're also looking at other aspects of fetal tissue, uh, tissue research. Um, a lot of it is uh, understanding human development. Uh, there's, there's always this promise that uh, uh, further research along these lines is going to cure just about everything that happens all the way from pediatric diseases to end-of-life issues. Um, so the, the use of aborted fetal tissue is, is actually much, much broader than vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, well, like I was saying so, at the beginning of this, we even have the ebook on the cosmetic side of it. So yeah, I've, done, yes. I've delved a little bit into it and done a little bit of research about the different aspects that goes into, which we'll definitely get into in the podcast. So we do, um, we do a lot of research um, uh, individually and, and collectively, my wife and I work together on this. Um, and what every time we have left over, we focus on advocacy. So, you know, we sponsor a, uh, uh, we sponsor a teen leadership camp uh, that's an annual event. Um, and we're, um, we're trying to attract um, uh, younger people into kind of the pro-life issue. And the theme this year was, um, uh, was to know your human dignity. Because a lot of the issues that we deal with are either directly or indirectly related to human dignity. Yeah. Um, so um, we do the team leadership camp. Uh, there's legislative outreach. We had uh, <clears throat> uh, we we had a bill introduced this year in the Texas State Senate uh, that unfortunately never made it to the floor. There were all sorts of issues in front of it, but uh, we're going to try again in the, the next session. Uh, and if we could possibly get a similar bill like that in another state legislature, we certainly will. That's really important. So, oh, absolutely. I, you know, knowledge without application really isn't much use. Um, and, you know, we, we do a lot of the research bit. Um, and we focus on high-quality research. My wife and I are both academics. Or, or She's an academic. I have a Ph.D. There's a difference. <laughs> Um, but we both know our way around scientific literature um, and academic literature, and that's that's where we that's where we take um, everything that we present as authoritative uh, has peer-reviewed references associated with it. Anything else that that might be considered speculation, we brand it as such, and if it's opinion, we brand it as such. But uh, our research is done um, in compliance with academic standards and therefore reliable. Now, it doesn't mean it's, it's right 100% of the time because sometimes, um, uh, you know, as we learned during COVID, uh, uh, the scientific literature is not always reliable. Yeah. So do you have a PhD in like the science field then or like do you have a scientific background? I'm a mathematician. I'm a mathematician. Um, uh, my academic background is in applied mathematics. Uh, I also have advanced degrees in applied analytical methods and political science. Okay, so you understand how the numbers. So, do you have any kind of scientific background for going into this? Then, or are you just really good at being able to logically look at the like re- research and figure it out that way? 
Well, the, the logic piece is very important, but in, uh, in my postgraduate studies, um, I worked with my share of physicists. Uh, you know, much of what's happening in the medical field is biochemical. Um, and thankfully, my wife happens to be a PhD in, in, in chemistry. So uh, if, I if I run across something that I really need some help on, help is only a hey, honey, away. That's awesome. So what is the history then of the fetal cell tissue um, research? Can you give a little background for lay listeners? So I know some people might have heard about it in vaccines before, but just I, I know it's a topic that is getting to be more common, but most people don't really understand that much about it. So can you just give a little background for our listeners? Yeah, um, for all practical purposes, um, vaccines and fetal tissue um, have been... Um, uh, you know, have, have been kind of joined at the hip from the very beginning. And this dates back uh, to the 1930s um, in the development of the polio vaccine. Uh, the polio vaccine um, development happened in the mid to late 1930s. The Sabin vaccine was, was, one of, was one of the first broad application vaccines that were developed. Um, and, and polio was a particularly concerning disease. It was communicable. It was. It also had. Um, uh, it also had impacts that were that were uh, moderate to severe, and uh, and the severity of it was actually significant. So there was a great deal of interest on on developing something that could be a prophylactic to um, uh, poliomyelitis. And the first step in that was the isolation of the polio virus. And um, babies were butchered. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry if I, if, I, if I pause on occasion because this is kind of difficult to talk about. But in their search for the virus, they, um, they were aborting fetuses and butchering them, looking to isolate the virus. Uh, the reason they were using fetuses was the infection would pass from the mother to the child um, uh, in, in the womb, and in the womb, that that infection would be relatively unmolested from from other confounding elements. And um, some of this had to do with women's hospitals that catered to the indigent and to the quote unquote feeble minded. Uh, there are documents out there and presentations that we have on our website that give the details on this. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. But um, also descriptions on how the aborted fetuses were obtained. I'm and guessing this was mostly abortion. illegal abortions because obviously abortion wasn't legal at that point. So they were illegally basically aborting children and then using their bodies. These were Correct. Yeah, they, you know, these were uh, in in the terms of the day medically indicated for a variety of reasons. So the connection between these abortions and feeble-minded patients, and you know, I find it distasteful to even use that language, uh, but that's what's in the literature. Um, uh, was you know there was an official capacity associated with the ordering of those abortions. And most of the abortions um, were uh, hysterotomies, um, a, a cesarean section. And the language describing the, um, the obtaining of these, uh, of 
these specimens was really kind of disturbing, where they would, um, I'll, I'll paraphrase, but they would say that the, the fetus was obtained through uh, surgical hysterotomy. And whenever possible, the fetuses would be kept inside the amniotic sac, placed on a sterile towel, and dissected as quickly as possible. So what they did was they delivered a baby by cesarean section, and the baby died during the dissection because they were, yeah. Um, And, um, you know, that's, that's why I say babies were butchered during this process. Mm-hmm. And that was how they isolated the virus. Um, and did they have the development did they, the quote unquote, have to? Like, were they choosing to do this on unborn children because they wouldn't be affected by any other viruses? Was that the logical reasoning for using unborn children? Yes. Um, and, you know, they didn't have the benefit of what we know today. Were, were there alternatives? Knowing then what we know now, absolutely there would have been alternatives. Um, uh, but you know, medical science, um, ethically and unethically, has developed quite a bit in the last ninety years. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the fact remains is that babies were butchered in the process of developing the poliomyelitis vaccine, wow. the Sabin vaccine. I never knew that. I know I've read more about the stuff later on. People talk about how I forget which cell line it is that started in like the sixties, seventies. People talk a lot more about that. I didn't realize it went all the way back to polio. That's pretty hard. Yes. Yeah, you know, it went back to the thirties and that was kind of the origin of it. And and the development of the rubella vaccine was generally similar, but the rubella vaccine came two decades later. Mm-hmm. Um and there were a number of there were a number of um of infants, fetuses, babies that were that were aborted in the same manner for the same purposes in looking to isolate the rubella virus, and that virus passed very. Uh, and what made that 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 virus uh, particularly important, at least in the eyes of the researchers to get their hands around, was um, its uh, ability. Uh, to result in severe birth defects to born children. So this is this is kind of the emergence of um, uh, of, of a remarkable irony, mm-hmm. um, uh, where we exploit and kill the unwanted for the benefit of the wanted, and the use of aborted fetal tissue in biomedical and, and biomedical uh, endeavors really just does come down to that. What is it used for in today's day and age? Are they, because I know that it's used for more than just vaccines now. So how is this, the, like the tissue of children used in modern science? Well, um, you know, I guess uh, before we go there, I think we should talk a little bit about um, what cell strains and cell lines are and why they're valuable and valuable from a scientific standpoint, not valuable from a moral and ethical standpoint. But um, a cell strain is um, is a group of cells that continues to divide naturally. Now, um, uh, a, a lot of the biologics that are used today in biomedical and biomedical research are in fact cell strains. And um, 
what distinguishes a cell strain, a uh, primary culture, from a cell line uh, is that a cell strain has a lifespan. And one of the, um, one of the first cell strains developed um, was Wistar 38. Um, uh, and, you know, the Wistar Institute is located in Philadelphia, and it was developed by um, uh, a doctor uh, by the name of Leonard Hayflick. Leonard Hayflick did a great deal of research in this area, whether it's cell lines or cell strains. Uh, he also um, uh, he, he also authored what is known today as the Hayflick limit. Uh, he he looked at he, he examined how cell strains, primary cultures, uh, divided over the years, and when that division rate started to decline. And um, it actually makes perfect sense when you say it this way, but the Hayflick limit says that a cell strain will live about as long as the average lifespan of the donor organism. So if you have a cell strain that's human in origin, you figure um, those, those cells are going to uh, replicate in a, in a fairly healthy and, and normal fashion for about 70 years and then it starts to fall off. Ultimately, the cell strains, you know, the telomeres, uh, every single cell division, the telomeres get a little shorter and a little shorter, and that's, uh, uh, you know, that's, that, that's our genetic time clock. Um, so cell strains aren't indefinite. There's, there's always a need for more, and Wistar 38, uh, was established uh, back in the late, no, in the early 1960s, uh, so it's reaching the end of its life. So some research is going into how they're going to replace it. Um, so, and that's what a cell strain is. It's a primary culture. It's human cells that that uh, are, are placed in a nutrient-rich solution. They continue to divide on their own. And at some point, they expire just like we do. A cell line continues to replicate indefinitely. And that's... A cell line um, can can be um, taken from like HeLa cells. The HeLa cell line has been um, has been replicating for decades and decades and decades with no signs of slowing down or anything like that, because the source of those cells was a cancerous tumor from a woman named Henrietta Lacks. HeLa. H-E stands for Henrietta, L-A stands for Lax. That was the origin of those cells. Uh, and the cells that were taken from a biopsy from her tumor were, without her consent, cultured and established the HeLa cell line. She, shortly after the biopsy, she, she succumbed to the disease. But her family has come back and said, you have, I mean, you, you've, you've appropriated something from Henrietta Lax we are her legal. We are her next of kin, her her her, her surviving family. Um, you owe the family some compensation. Um, so you know, it, you know, it's it, it, it's kind of interesting that those cells from a biopsy established a cell line that turned out to have a significant amount of commercial value, um, and it's recognized that without recognizing that value, that there is exploitation. If it was from a cancerous tumor, wouldn't the cells be cancerous then? 
they they certainly have they certainly have a predisposition to mutation, and that's what happens with you know, that's what happens with cancer. But that's <clears throat> that's that's what makes cancer so dangerous. It, it it replicates at a remarkable rate on its own, and it's very very difficult to stop. So, um, cells cell lines that have been established from cancerous tumors or pre-tumor uh, pre-tumor uh, masses. Um, they, um, they, they require no further work other than to say that there they go. Now, the most, uh, the most commonly used cell line that's fetal in origin is called HEK293. Human, embryo human embryonic kidney is what HEK stands for. 293 is the 293rd iteration of the experiment that ultimately established the cell line. So the 293rd child, basically. Um, it's unclear how many children were involved, um, you know, in, in taking the samples, okay. but absolutely, almost certain, uh, you know, there were multiples. So uh, it's, it's not correct to say that there were 293 children. It's also not correct to say that there was one. Okay. Uh, but you have people on both sides that are just kind of arguing. Um, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Um, and you know the, the number of the, the number of children that were involved in establishing HEK 293 um, probably wasn't close to 293, but it was certainly uh, it was certainly into the dozens because a child can produce organic uh, organ samples more than uh, more than one organ sample per child. So it just so happened to be a kidney. It wasn't that they were taking kidneys from multiple, like they were they looking for it from any organ and it happened to be a kidney, I guess. Um, it, it just happened to be kidney. Um, and, uh, you know, the organ source is important because organ cells are very dynamic little factories. They're, they're, they're very, very busy from a biological standpoint. They, um, they, they, actively metabolize their, uh, they actively metabolize their food at a high rate. Uh, they produce their own energy. They are enormous protein factories. Uh, you know, the human cell is really a remarkable piece of divine engineering. I mean, it's, uh, um, uh, everything that goes on inside the, the human cell is just spectacular. Um, and cells um, in organ tissues like kidneys, the liver, heart, um, less so, uh, less so heart muscle, um, uh, but uh, certainly the kidneys, liver, and lungs are are, are high on everybody's priority list um, because the cells in those tissues are um, very, very busy. Um, they have a high enzymatic content. Um, they, they they produce a wide variety of proteins. They can be modified to enhance certain expressions, um, uh, as as we can talk about in the context of HEK two ninety three. Um, because what made HEK two ninety three uh, immortal, when they call it, they call it immortal, which is another just remarkable irony, um, by modifying the genetics of that cell line with um, uh, with DNA from an adenovirus. They, they, they genetically modified the cells, um, the, the uh, kidney cells, 
uh, from cells from an adenovirus, the adeno adenovirus 5, I believe. And that modification resulted in perpetual, or at least it's thought to be perpetual replication. Okay, interesting. So that's where, why it's called an immortal virus, because it doesn't have the time limit that a, a cell strain would have. It will just keep producing. Uh, correct. Uh, it, it, it's thought that these cell lines will, will replicate indefinitely. So then how are they used? You and I will never know. <laughs> yeah. How are they used in modern science now? Because I know it's like I said, it's, I know that it's broadened out beyond vaccines. So how are they used? In today's day and age, well, um, it, it goes beyond vaccines and into a great uh, and into a variety of other medications. Um, and what makes it uh, what makes them useful is the cells have expression characteristics. There's um, <clears throat> there there are uh, there are bodies within the cell whose job it is to produce proteins. Mm -hmm. And those proteins can uh, those proteins are a response to something, um, and among those proteins are things like antibodies. Uh, and our immune system produces antibodies in response to a great many things. So, the um, the connection with vaccines is clear. But a lot of the other proteins that a cell can uh, that a cell can express don't have to do with the immune system. They have to do with um, they have to do with the body's own physiochemistry. So, if we're talking about a, a disease or a condition that is the result of some dysregulation in the body because you have too much of this and not enough of that, um, that can be controlled through uh, through expression of proteins at the cellular level. So the the utility of um, fetal cell lines is actually much broader than vaccines and anything that's related to the immune system itself. Anything that anything that's regulated by the production of proteins at the cellular level has a potential application with cell lines. Interesting. And that's a lot. So it probably, does it mean that this now affects a lot of the medications that are available out there in the market today? And is there a good way to figure out which ones those are? Um, Big question. A good way? A good way? No. A way? Yes. Um, it, it really is pick and shovel work. Um, and I'm not sure how one could do that without the internet. Mm -hmm. um, uh, because the the answers lie in the scientific literature, and sometimes it's not straightforward. Where you can you can read the materials and methods section in in a peer reviewed paper, and not find anything remarkable, but you can find a reference to another paper that has a reference to another paper that has a reference to perhaps yet another paper where you find the specific method that was applied in the original paper and that specific method made use of aborted fetal cell lines. Um, so uh, yeah, it is, it is knowable, but not easily knowable. It is not easily discoverable. If you don't know how to navigate the scientific literature um, and if you're at all intimidated with certain types of uh, terminology, it's very easy to throw up your hands and say, I'm done. I can't figure this out. Um, but the information is out there. How do people navigate that? 
when it comes to picking medicines and stuff like that. I know that you do, a, you've done some research and you have lists of the vaccines on your website that people like are ethical versus ones that aren't ethical. What do you suggest yeah. for people who want to navigate this and want to avoid medicines that use, that are connected to these cell lines? Well, yeah, there, there are some rules of thumb um, that I let some people know because some of the vaccines, you know, uh, some of the vaccines that, that are in common use today <clears throat> aren't really concerned with viral pathogens. A virus um, cannot replicate on its own. A virus needs a host cell. Uh, and if you're talking about a viral vaccine or a viral medication, some, some you know, something having to do with a viral infection, the chances of that involving fetal cell lines are are very much higher um, than something like diphtheria, tetanus, or pertussis. Uh, 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 like the um, those are bacterial pathogens, mm -hmm. and bacterial you know bacteria don't have a problem at all replicating on their own. All they need is food. Um, uh, so, as a general rule of thumb. I, you know, I let people know. I, I, I let people know that if if you're dealing with a vaccine um, that's that's dealing with a bacterial pathogen, chances are very very good that there is no ethical compromise in its history. Now, I still look into those, and occasionally you do find one that involves the use of uh, fetal cell lines, um, but not nearly as many, not nearly at the rate that you do find in in, in the development of of viral pathogens for vaccine use. And then I saw an article on your website at one point where you were replying to the whole list of products. I believe it went kind of viral on the internet a few years ago, saying things like mm -hmm. Advil, Tums, Sour Patch Kids, all sorts of different foods and medications were connected to fetal cell lines. And you had a great reply to that. Mm -hmm. Can you give that to our listeners? Because I know that that was something that I think I avoided candy corn for about two years because it was on some list somewhere of things that were connected and I'm very glad to be able to have it again. So can you just kind of give that answer so that answer to our listeners to kind of clear up those misconceptions that are out there? You know, there, there's a lot there. Um, uh, and, and I'll start by letting you know what, you know, what started this whole thing. And this was during COVID mm -hmm. um, because we were one of the organizations that, that, that got underneath the scientific literature and said, Hey, wait a minute. All of these COVID vaccinations, um, all of the ones that are being evaluated by, by the FDA for use in the United States, all of them are ethically compromised. Now, there was some argument as to whether or not that was true. Um, uh, and interestingly, you know, some of those arguments persist to this day. Like if, if you were to call Novavax um, and ask them if uh, uh, aborted fetal cells or aborted fetal tissue was used in any way, shape, or form in the development of their, of their vaccine, with a straight face, they will say no. And I can point to a paper where half of the authors listed on the mass head were um, employees of Novavax, and Novavax in part funded the, um, uh, the experiment in question were the use of HEK-293 to evaluate a variety of different, um, they used it to express a variety of different versions of the virus so they could test their vaccine across a, uh, across a spectrum of, 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 of different spike proteins. Um, and, and it said so right there in black and white. 
in a peer-reviewed paper, I believe it was published in, um, I believe it was published in Cell, um, which is a highly thought of peer-reviewed publication. Um, so it's really not arguable. They wrote it down. So you have situations here where, um, uh, you know, the Greek dramatist Aeschylus in, in the fifth uh, century BC was the first one to say that in war, truth is the first casualty. And truth was definitely a casualty during COVID because everybody had a point to make. Everybody had an ax to grind. Everybody wanted to make sure that they felt better about themselves and somebody else felt about them. Um, you know, the whole thing from a, from, from a high level, from a high view of human behavior was really kind of disgraceful. Um, and of all people, a Catholic priest uh, wrote an article on his um, on his blog, and you know blogs being what they are, they're not immediately notorious. But at some point, people started to notice. He wrote uh, he wrote a piece on his blog, um, and it was titled and uh, titled to the effect of if um, uh, you know if you're having a problem with the vaccines or if HEK two ninety three is no longer uh, you know is no longer ethical to use in modern medicine, then you need to kiss modern medicine goodbye. His point was that it's everywhere and it's everything, and we need to get over it. And we need to move on. Um, but um, and then he started throwing some examples out, and he partnered with uh, a medical doctor that helped him with the research. And he put a list of medications on the, at the end of that blog post on that got a lot of attention. And he put things on there like aspirin and Tums and Preparation H. Um, he put a couple of vaccines on there that actually were developed using aborted fetal cell lines. But, you know, uh, uh, a broken clock is right twice a day. Um, so, you know, and Tylenol and ibuprofen, a lot of things that are very commonly used. Claritin was another one. Um, and that was brought to my attention. A number of people that, that are regular readers of our website came across that and um, they were very, very concerned. So emails started coming in going, can this be right? And it's like, no, nah, I don't think so. Um, but let me look into it and I'll get back to you. And I started going through the list item by item. Um, and he had originally put together a list of 14 medications. Um, and out of the 14, uh, I think uh, there were two vaccines on there that actually had an association to abortion. The rest of them were a swing and a miss. Um, I'll, I'll give you a really good example. Aspirin, you know, he said aspirin was developed with HEK-293, just like the, uh, the COVID vaccines were. Aspirin was discovered. It was first produced in 1877 by a French chemist named Friedrich Gerhardt. 1877 was exactly 100 years before HEK-293 was available to the research community. So um, aspirin being developed um, in aborted fetal cell lines or tested in aborted fetal cell lines or even sharing the same time and space with aborted fetal cell lines is an impossibility. Um, so that was one. Um, acetaminophen, also known as paracetamol, um, was only 10 years younger 
than aspirin. It was first it was first synthesized in 1887. So another one, it, you know, it's impossible, absolutely impossible that that you can make the equivalents, COVID vaccines, aspirin, or Tylenol. Can't happen that way. Um, the most preposterous of the bunch, though, was Tums. Um, Tums is nothing more than calcium carbonate and sugar. And it was um, it was invented by a fellow um, by the last name of Howe, and he invented it in the basement of his Chicago home in 1930. Uh, and uh, he invented it to... Um, relieve his wife's indigestion. So, and it's all calcium carbonate and sugar. Um, and it still is almost all calcium carbonate and sugar, but they put other things in there like colorants and flavorings and those sorts of things. Um, but it's, it's still no different than a piece of chalk, chemically speaking, um, or an eggshell or anything made out of limestone because limestone is for the, is, 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 calcium carbonate or the white cliffs of Dover. Um, so, you know, I, I started thinking about that a little bit and I go, that's, that has to be the most, that has to be one of the most, you got to have a lot of sand to put that, that one out there. Uh, or you don't know a darn thing about, or you don't know a darn thing about chemistry. Um, you know, it's just like, well, they, they were developed with aborted fetal cell lines, so therefore anything made with calcium carbonate is, is ethically compromised. The state capitol building in Indianapolis, Indiana is made out of limestone. I don't have a problem with that building. <laughs> is it um, possible that some of these medicines, not maybe not Tums, but things like Advil or other ones could have been tested on the cell lines after they were developed for certain reasons? Because it seems like there could be a confusion if you take something that was developed on its like ethically and you could do almost anything bad with it later on. And it's not going to change the ethical like nature of that item. You're going to just do something bad with it. That is, that's exactly correct. And that's a, that's an excellent point because a lot of people started making that argument. And when I, part of my research, um, when I was going through that list, I, I, I went to the sources cited by the medical doctor that was helping this priest put that list out. Um, and, you know, found some interesting things like the, um, the, the reference that supposedly proved the Tums were ethically compromised, um, mentioned calcium carbonate, but it had nothing to do with Tums. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't funded by a GlaxoSmithKline who now owns the brand for Tums. Um, it was using microstructured or nanostructured calcium carbonate as a gene insertion tool, um, uh, you know, for, uh, for genetic applications, for genetic research applications. So it had nothing to do with tons. It, it just had a chemical similarity to something like, so if, if, if the argument were to hold water, then in fact, the state capitol building in Indianapolis, Indiana, would be ethically compromised. Um, but it's a fair point. You have something that's developed ethically, and at some point in the future, some researcher in a completely unrelated way to the manufacturer of that, of, of, of that particular preparation does something that involves aborted fetal tissue. Um, it, the, the, the question becomes, does that subsequent act then taint the origin of the drug? and 
the way I look at things, that's not a, that's not, I'm a mathematician. That's not commutative. Um, you know, um, you know, Henry Ford, there cannot be held responsible for drunk driving, nor John Moses Browning be held responsible for armed robbery. It doesn't make any sense. Not that this would scientifically happen, but if you took chocolate and then you tested it on a cell line for some reason, that doesn't make chocolate bad. It just means that that action over there that someone did is bad. Exactly. The action, uh, you know, the, the subsequent action has no effect on the origins of a drug. Um, uh, but that was argued. That was argued for quite some time, and I still think some people want to go want to go back to that. And I think that's a really um, important thing for people to be aware of that there's a difference between how something was actually developed, like what went into the actual putting it together, and then what people do with it subsequently. Because that's a really important distinction to be able to make is recognize that people can do bad things with a good object, but what you need to look up in this is how is that object made. That very well said. I think that that is a very, very important distinction. Um, and it, it, it also brings into it also brings into the conversation the difference between research and clinical testing and preclinical testing. Um, if you're a drug manufacturer and you get the FDA's thumbs up that says, OK, you can sell this now. The last thing you're going to do is to do anything that's going to put you back into that approval cycle because it's long, it's expensive, um, and you, you're never really sure you're going to recover your investments from a business perspective. So it makes no sense for a manufacturer that's been manufacturing ibuprofen. And ibuprofen was also on that list and ibuprofen was ethically developed. There's no question about it. Um, it would make no sense for a manufacturer who's selling ibuprofen, either on a prescription basis or over the counter or both, to quote unquote reformulate that medicine and use cell use aborted fetal cell lines and throw it back into the approval process. It makes no sense from a business perspective whatsoever. So, um, understanding the difference between your research, which is what the calcium carbonate ar argument was for Tums. You know, it was a it was a gene insertion technique using nanostructured uh, calcium carbonate. Had nothing to do with Tums. Had nothing to do with anything other than what the paper was about. Uh, that's pure research. Clinical testing and preclinical testing are what are what we're concerned about and the development process. Um, so, in my mind, it is perfectly reasonable, if not obvious, that those two bodies need to remain separate. As, as, you, as you put it very well, uh, people can do bad and evil things with something that was, that, was, that was properly and ethically produced. When you talk about research in that context, you're talking about something that already exists and using it for further research, right? Not the research that goes into developing it? Exactly. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, it becomes an ingredient. It becomes an ingredient on, as part of an, an experimental design for something else. But obviously, if you're developing um, a new product and the research at the top is flawed, then that's going to affect the subsequent production of a new drug, correct? So like, if the research is flawed when you're developing a new drug, that would be like the drug wouldn't exist except for unethical research. So that would be the research in that sense would be a different side of things. Am I, or do, am I just missing what you're saying? Yeah. 
that, that's correct. And that's a test. My, my wife and I discussed this um, a lot. <clears throat> and it, there, there, there were people who wanted to make a distinction between uh, a dependency on aborted fetal tissue versus um, uh, an immaterial use of it. Um, and I'm not sure what that, I'm not sure what that immaterial use of, um, of fetal tissue or fetal cell lines would be, but let's just say, let, let's just accept the distinction for a moment. If a drug were to be developed, researched, tested, and brought to market, if that process right there um, depended on the use of fetal cell lines or fetal tissue in any way, shape, or form, and I think that's what creates that, that that's what creates an undeniable ethical fault. The ethical compromise is associated with the dependency, with the critical dependency on the use of aborted fetal tissue or fetal cell lines. And that seems to satisfy just about everybody. Uh, and that but for test, if you look at, say, for example, the COVID vaccines, but for the use of aborted fetal cell lines, they would never, ever have been able to synthesize the spike protein. So that settles that argument. And then where does the food industry fit into this? Because I know that there's, I think, artificial flavoring in certain products that doesn't have, obviously, the fetal cells in it, but was the, the, the science going into that artificial flavoring was developed using fetal cell lines. Can you talk a little bit to that as well? Yeah, and, you know, that's... Um, the, if I were to look at the number of emails that I get over the course of a month and and separate them into piles, that might be the biggest pile. Um, and you know, it's just kind of understandable. I mean, vaccines are um, vaccines are a big deal because they affect just about everybody. And from a parent's perspective, they you know they affect our kids. So you know, we tend to have a we tend to have a great deal of interest and a visceral response to. Um, yet another vaccine. Oh, by the way, um, were you aware that if from birth to the age of 18, if you follow the CDC recommendations for vaccines, you would get stuck 98 times? Wow. Yeah. I'm glad I was born in 1959 because if I were born today, I wouldn't make it because I don't like needles. Um, but it, it, and it's really remarkable how, let, let's just use the word reliant, we have on, uh, you know, we've become as a society on these sorts of things. And it continues to grow because now, we're, now we need to add the RSV vaccine and a couple of other things. But anyway, sorry for the, uh, sorry for the hijack. Um, but let's get back to the question. <coughs> um, the use of aborted fetal cells in flavor enhancers and, and, and that sort of thing might very well be the biggest pile um, because people come across that and say, my goodness, I just ate a, I just ate a bag of M&Ms. What have I done? Um, and there are websites um, and organizations out there that are, in my view, irresponsibly telling everybody that it's in everything. Okay, for clarification. Um, do M&Ms have this? Are they tainted? <laughs> no. Okay. I figured that was an example, <laughs> but I just wanted to clarify for myself and for our listeners. 
I, and I, I literally have gotten those questions. Are my M&Ms okay? How about my Skittles? Um, I love Jelly Bellies. And it's just like, yeah, I, I, I get all that. I mean, we're, it, it would be horrifying to think um, that the foods we enjoy uh, are, are connected to abortion. Uh, so I, 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 I understand why people get so exercised over it. Um, but the, um, this goes back to about 2010, 2009, 2010. There was a company in California, I believe they were based in San Diego. Um, a company's name was Sonomics. Um, and they came up with a method that could fool the tongue into thinking it was testing, tasting something that wasn't really there. Um, and the flavor enhancers that they, that they developed, they tested them in aborted fetal cell lines. And what they were looking for was the cell's response, producing specific proteins that, taste, that, that our taste receptors on our tongues would produce um, for salty flavors, bitter, sweet, uh, you know, in, in, anything like that. So you could, you could create the illusion um, that a food has high salt content when in fact it doesn't. And they were looking for um, the cells to express certain proteins and then they would use human testing to confirm it um, and then they would bring it to market. But the front end of that testing cycle had to do with aborted fetal cell lines. Uh, and it's just the testing. It's not part of the production of the flavor enhancers, which is, is really important. There are people out there that say, well, it's in our food. It's not. Um, but that's where it goes back to because the research that led to these flavor enhancers was unethical. It makes kind of the whole line down after that unethical. When it comes yes. to efficacy. But then the actual products in the food themselves are not the fetal cell lines. That's correct. But it, it those flavor enhancers fail the but for test, you know. But for the use of fetal cell lines, they would not have brought it to market. Okay. I mean, it was it was essential. It was on the critical path to them developing what they developed. Um, and PepsiCo was one of the first companies to say this is kind of interesting. Now, I don't think they I don't think PepsiCo walked in and said, "Hey, you're using aborted fetal cell lines. We want to try your stuff." You know, I think, um, objectively speaking, let's let's forget the ethical compromise for a moment. But objectively speaking, that technology is really, really attractive. Um, uh, you know, the artificial sweetener thing goes right out the window. We don't have to worry about uh, aspartame or any of the other uh, artificial sweeteners being carcinogens. Uh, the the illusion of sweetness can be created by these enhan uh, these enhancers in very, very, very small amounts. Um, uh, salt intake could be cut down. All sorts of benefits could come from something like this. So Pepsi was uh, initially interested. Um, Debbie Vintage, our founder, um, learned of this. Somebody had alerted her to um, uh, Sonomics in one of the patents, um, one of the patents that they filed, and also the language on their website. They were very open about the fact that they use fetal cell lines. Didn't hide it from anybody. It was there for anybody to read on their website in unambiguous terms. They were completely unconcerned. They didn't think that would create a problem from a marketing standpoint. They were wrong. Um, 
when when Debbie you know, when Debbie got people involved and started circling the wagons and started talking about a boycott, people started acting on that sort of thing. PepsiCo um, uh, started paying attention very quickly because it affected their market share very very quickly. It's like how, how dare you and a lot you can imagine a lot of the things that were said. How dare you put dead babies in my soda pot? That wasn't the way it was, but that's. I think we have to understand kind of the visceral reaction, our gut level reaction to something like this. Like, um, I'm, I'm not sure I would have said anything different. Um, uh, so PepsiCo, even though they were they were under contract, they continued to pay Sonomics, but they say we're not going to use any of your stuff. They went out and hired real people to do their taste test. Um, Campbell's Soup um, was. Uh, was also part of um, the, the, the front end that expressed interest in this technology. Um, and when they learned of it, when it was brought to their attention, they were very quick. You know, they, nobody had to talk about boycotting Campbell's or anything like that. They were very apologetic. I think, in, in my opinion, Campbell's did a terrific job of kind of crisis management on the front end, own up to it, say, uh, we're sorry, we're never going to do this again. That's not in keeping with uh, how we view our products and our customers, and we're terribly sorry, it'll never happen again. Um, Kraft Foods um, uh, was much more quiet about it, but they also decided not to proceed because of uh, uh, because of the visibility that Debbie Vintage and Children of God to Life created in 2011, 2012. That's, that's very, that's chronicled in a very detailed way on our website. If anybody is curious about um, about the history associated with that, uh, it's it's actually a pretty good read. Yeah, no, I read a little bit about that one. Like I said, when I was doing research for the ebook we wrote, and actually that's a good jump. Okay, let me finish up this topic first before I ask another question. Um, so, are there any food products whatsoever that are in that people would buy at stores that are connected with this at all? Did any companies go through with it? Um, there are some, uh, and, and some are, they sell their products here, but they're, they're manufactured elsewhere. Uh, Ginomoto, uh, uses these flavor enhancers in a number of their products. Um, and I, you know, I think in part because it allows them to, it allows them to enhance the saltiness of a lot of their products without, without, without high sodium content. And you have a list of that on your website, I believe, right? Some of the foods. Yes. Okay. I can always link that in the description yeah. for our viewers as well. So they can go and look at individual products. Right. And Cadbury Adams, um, uh, Nestle's refrigerated coffee creamers um, are also on that list. But if you approach Nestle's with it, they say, we've never done anything like that. It's like, I'm sorry, but that, 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 that doesn't match up what's been written down in the past. Um, and Nestle's, uh, Nestle has kind of a, checkered history associated with the exploitation of the killed unborn. Um, and time, per, uh, time permitting, we can, we can probably touch on that uh, in the development of infant formula for neonates, neonatal infant formula. Mm -hmm. What they did to develop that was horrifying. Um, uh, with, with, with aborted children, they, what, they were, these, these children were delivered live. Um, and what they were measuring was the transfer of a, uh, was the transfer of amino acids through the umbilical cord to develop ultimately neonatal infant formula. 
And the nature of the testing resulted in the death of every single one of the children that were involved in that. And this is infant formula that was developed on the backs of murdered and exploited children. And Nestle funded a lot of that. So um, I can understand them being a little hand shy because, um, I mean, it's, it's not widely known that they did this, but the people that know won't let them forget. I think most um, of these topics are kind of generally known, but not widely known among most groups. And when there are known, there's misinformation going on, like with the article from the priest that was listing things that weren't connected with it at all. There's so much misinformation floating around. Yeah, and, and at some point you have to wonder about what motivates that sort of thing, because um, while, while some of this information is not easily discoverable, mm-hmm. um, you, can, you can look at a source like Wikipedia and look at a date and say 1877 is way before 1977 and be done with it. Um, so, uh, but, but, but you're right. I think, um, I think the, the common person today has a very limited, if any, idea that aborted fetal tissue is used in producing medications or is used in um, you know, this kind of human developmental research. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a project right now called the Human, uh, the, uh, the human Cell Atlas. And they're trying to understand, among other things, when um, human cells start to differentiate. That's one of the things that makes stem cells on one hand so interesting and potentially dangerous because stem cells, they start out life not being much of anything other than a human cell. Um, and something happens and said, and this stem cell over here says, I'm going to be a brain cell or I'm going to be a neuron. Um, and, and they develop along those paths. And that happens in generally the same way for every single human being that's ever been born or ever will be born. So this, this project gets at trying to understand um, human development from that point of differentiation and the growth of the organism to birth. Um, and uh, if, if, if you think about what happens in nine relatively short months, I know if you know, an expectant mother isn't going to agree with that, um, but what happens in nine months is, is, is nothing short of miraculous. Uh, where you go from uh, where you where you go from zygote to a fully formed human being with all of the parts that are working in concert and everything, and it's you know it's really it's, it's an extraordinary thing, and the rate of development is rapid, um, and they're trying to understand that among the benefits that they say uh, associated with this fetal cell atlas is that they'll be able to identify and cure virtually all pediatric diseases. Um, which sounds more than a little too ambitious, um, but uh, yeah, it's. Um, but how are they going to do that? They need fetal tissue at every point along that developmental line, um, and some of it undoubtedly will be the source will be aborted fetal tissue. Can I go um, back for a moment to what you were saying about Nestle's formula? Is any of that on the market today? Uh, the neonatal formula? Yeah. Yes, it did. Okay. I just was curious. It was something that occurred to me as you were talking that I didn't, I wouldn't ask about that. So that's good to be aware of. So anyway, sorry. Yes. 
Yeah, and and when when people start to learn about that, uh, that um, I think they get they get angry, and I think that anger is justifiable. Yeah. Like, because you're um, killing children to help other children, and that is just right. so. Like you said, it's the irony. It's not like killing children to help other people is ever good either. But there's just something really that jumps out to you with that. Of that is that is the murder and the exploitation of the unwanted children for the benefit of the other ones, the ones that are wanted. Can we go and, into? Oh, sorry. No, no, please go ahead. Um, the last like so we did the talked about vaccines. We talked about the food element of it. Can you talk a little bit about cosmetics? Like I said, we did an uh, ebook on the whole subject, which I'll link for our viewers if they're interested in learning more about it. But can you talk a little bit about the use of? aborted fetal tissue in cosmetics and what's going on there? Um, there's, it's very difficult to know for sure. Okay. Because that's, that, that's relatively unregulated. Um, you know, so to the extent that we know anything is because the manufacturers themselves tell us. And um, there's, there's a company in particular called Neocutis that is kind of the synomics of the cosmetics world, mm -hmm. where they make no bones about it. They 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 openly disclose it. On, 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 on one hand, it's kind of sad that people think that's no big deal. On the other hand, I, you know, I appreciate their their honesty. Mm -hmm. um, because are there other people that are using fetal tissue in ways that we don't know about? Yes, absolutely. Uh, because they're not compelled to tell us. And they're not going to tell us because they expect it to be bad for business. Is it unregulated? Like, so I guess, I'm guessing that what happens with drugs and medication that you said you can find it. And with food is that's all regulated because of like the Food and Drug Administration or the science along those lines. But then cosmetics aren't regulated. Is that why they aren't obliged to tell us? Um, that, that, that's essentially correct. It's uh, to the degree that they're regulated. I, you know, there is... Uh, uh, the FDA does keep tabs on, you know, generally speaking, cosmetics and personal healthcare products, but you know, not to the degree that not to the degree that they look at medications. Um, you know, those are those are two entirely different things. So what you know, they're, they're what they're interested in is um, content of prohibited materials, safety. Um, uh, you know, is is the labeling correct? Those sorts of things. Uh, you know, in terms of how you made this hand cream, exactly. We, you know, please, we're busy enough. Don't bother us with that. Um, so, you know, it's not quite the wild, wild west, but it's much more the wild, wild west than than, than medicine certainly are. Uh, and uh, Neocutis uh, uses um, uh, proteins that. That are that were ultimately sourced from an aborted fetus, um, in a number of their, um, well, I, what do they call age-defying creams and that sort of thing, wrinkle creams and those, hey, and and for you know for skin repair and and to improve somebody's uh, youth, you know, or to create a youthful appearance because human cells taught them something, I guess. That's what makes, that's what makes these 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 aborted uh, the you know these, these aborted and exploited children valuable to medical science and commerce it's their very humanity 
Now, for all of the people that say, what are you worried about? It's just a clump of shells. No, you can't own both sides of the argument. The only reason they're used is because they're human. So that argument is over. Um, and, you know, and if you ask a, if you ask a microbiologist, that question, why are fetal cell lines so important? That is the answer that he will give you. Um, it may not be quite that clear, but it all comes down to they're human. Their very humanity is why they're important to their work. Such a big issue that there's so much like to unpack in it. I might actually split this episode into two because there's so much here, but it's so, oh, yeah. yeah, there's so much to unpack. It, you know, if it's just like, well, if, you know, if, if we exploit an aborted child to give you this medicine, that'll make you feel better or live longer. I would say, I, I don't, I don't need that. I don't want to live longer if that's what it takes. Uh, so the, can you do it? Should not be the question. It should you do it. <clears throat> are there ethical alternatives to this in general in the medical field? Or are we kind of reaching a point where this is so ingrained in this, quote unquote, science that it's going to be hard to like, is there a way to develop these types of like the viral vaccines or other types of medicines that don't involve using aborted fetal cells? Absolutely. Um, all of the ones, are, uh, all of the COVID vaccines that are approved for use um, are ethically tainted. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you look at vaccines that are available elsewhere in the world, there are a great many of them that did not use aborted fetal cell lines. Uh, there, there are other cell lines that can that have generally the same expression characteristics. Now, remember, uh, you know what that's what cells do. Um, you know, it, and some of some of the proteins that are produced within the cell are called antibodies. They're proteins, um, and um, non-human primate cells like. Um, uh, Vero, the Vero cell line is African green monkey. Uh, the, the expression characteristics of those cells have been modified to a point where they very, very closely mimic the behavior of human cells. Um, there are insect cell lines, um, you know, caterpillar, uh, you know, they're, they're caterpillar cell lines that have very, very similar expression characteristics. They are often used. Um, there are a, adult cell lines. Uh, or adult cell strains that are on the, that that have the same almost the same level of utility, but they're argued against because they say, oh, oftentimes they're they're, they're infected by you know they have these legacy infection um, fingerprints. So it's like the person's been sick. There's something in the cell chemistry that reflects that sickness, and that could mask uh, and and that could mask its reactivity to what we're doing. Um, but fact of the matter is, is there are many, many alternatives to aborted fetal cell lines in developing virtually everything. Now, the exception to that is things like the human cell atlas, where if you're going to, if you're going to study how organs differentiate, you're going to need those cells, you're going to, and they're going to have to come from a human being. So that's one of those, do we really want to answer that question or not? Not. Yeah, to me, it's clear. It's just like, I'm okay never knowing that. If what it takes to know that is that horror. Yeah, that's so true. I'm okay with never knowing that. So what should our listeners do from here going forward? Do you have any suggestions for them about how, like, I know that we they can petition 
vaccine companies to try to make ethical versions of vaccines. What do you, what suggestions do you have for listeners after learning all of this? Um, I've been giving this some thought for a while because it's, you know, this is one of these knowledge without application really isn't worth a whole lot kind of questions. And, you know, I think the pro-life community in general, I think we can have the most significant impact in the shortest amount of time by ignoring what's in our medicine cabinets for the moment and thinking about what can increase awareness in a broad way. Um, and the piece of legislation that, that, um, that we were working with Senator Bob Hall on in Texas last year, I think is, um, is a really, really, really good way to do that. Now, um, we worked with our state legislators uh, for a reason. And, and I'm sure your listeners, and, and, and I'm sure you are as well, you've seen California Proposition 65 warnings on things in your house. Yeah, because it's on everything. It's, it's on everything. In California, this causes cancer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, and they're on pillowcases. And, you know, it's like, really? Um, but it, that was a state law that affected everybody. Yeah. And if we take the same approach um, and we get this passed, uh, we, get a, we get a law that requires the labeling of products that anywhere along the value chain used aborted fetal tissue or fetal cell lines or fetal material in any way, shape or form, anywhere along the value chain from, you know, just kind of proof of concept to stuff on the loading dock. Mm -hmm. If that has to be disclosed at the point of sale, then I think we can change things. Yeah, because then people people won't buy it and then it's automatically boycotted. Right. Um, and there, there have been other approaches that have been suggested like this. It's called the Human Products, uh, uh, Human, Human Cell Product Labeling Act. Um, and that's been introduced and um, actually hasn't made it to the floor in most cases, but sometimes it's been voted down. Um, and there's model language for that legislation. Um, and it would be better than nothing, but maybe not much better than nothing. Because it's human cells. There are lots of cell lines that originated from adult donors that gave consent, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so, I really don't need to know if you know if if whatever medicine I'm about to take was uh, you know the, there was an adult human cell line involved. I don't care. Um, there's 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 no ethical problem with that, um, and. It wouldn't be point of sale. I think if, if, if you're looking at a product in the store and you're looking at the label, this is like, you know what? Now I'm going to put this one back and this one right next to it is different. I'm going to buy that one. Yeah. You change consumer behavior based on that knowledge. And, and Pepsi succumbed to the threat of a boycott in a relatively short period of time with the Sonomics, uh, with the Sonomics situation. That happened very, very quickly, and it was all grassroots. And it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a mom from Florida that said, "I'm going to make your life miserable until you change." It worked. Yeah. Um, so 
if if we focus on if we focus on dealing with our state level representatives saying, look, we really need something that discloses this sort of thing at the point of sale, because we have cosmetics out there that say no animals were harmed by this product. Okay, why can't we have no human beings were harmed? You know, no, no, no unborn children were harmed. Um, uh, you know, that, 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 that seems comparatively like a bunny shot. Uh, it should be relatively simple to do. Yeah. Um, and if we focus on something like that, that generates a great deal of awareness mm -hmm. in a relatively short period of time, people standing in the pharmacy or standing in the grocery store or stand, you know, wherever, they will have that information available before they make a purchase decision, we can make a difference very, very quickly. And not only will the companies that are using these products lose sales, the products that are doing things well will have a boost in sales. So it'll be like a plus to them for doing things right. And then you'll be able to hopefully stop the use of it in products for the other companies. Exactly, it'll change behavior. And those alternatives that we talked about just a few minutes ago, they'll start using them. Well, this has been such an interesting conversation. It's something that I've been like, coming to learn more about over the past five years or so. And it's really good to have a source to go to that. I know that you guys are doing the research well and having a very logical approach to it, not just saying, oh, this good product was tested on it by some person and some bad thing. So the whole product's tainted. You have a very practical and ethical approach from what I can tell to looking at this issue. So thank you for that. Oh, it's um, as as we like to say, it's it, it it's the practice, not the product. Um, you know, so it it's the human behavior around the product, and and a lot of times we just, I mean, we, we end up focusing on the wrong things. Um, and you know, that's you know, that's just a part that's just a part of human nature, I guess, uh, because we want to be able to we want to be able to vent our anger at something, um, uh, like that evil corporation. I mean, I've worked for corporations. I'm here to tell you, corporations have no feelings. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> they, they just don't. Um, you know, a corporation's job is to grow and make money. Yeah. Um, and hopefully there's, there, you know, in, you know, ethics, business ethics has an, awful, has an awful lot to do with that. But we need to focus on the behaviors as opposed to the things. And stopping the behavior of using this research in developing products is the first way to start. So, yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, w with sufficient awareness, I think that could be largely organic. Yeah. Like you said, we have the products that say no animals were harmed. We need, we need to be able to, as pro-lifers, ask for those kind of products to be labeled as well. Yes, no, no aborted children were exploited, or something along those lines. I, you know, I, I really think that that we should put our efforts into something like that because uh, the focus, and again, it's perfectly understandable. I'm not trying to be critical of anybody <clears throat> and how they approach this sort of thing. Um, you know, because I've asked those questions of myself. I just go get the answers myself. But we tend to be focused on what's on what's in our medicine cabinet. What do I throw away and what do I keep? Okay, when you're done with that. Your medicine cabinet is half empty, but the problem is still there. And the problem, there, there are alternatives. There, there are alternatives. There are people working on, on alternatives every single day. Um, interestingly, we talked, um, we talked to, my wife and I had a conference call with a, uh, with a pharmacologist, PhD in pharmacology. 
Um, and we asked her that question. It's just like, well, it, it, it seems unnecessary. Why is it so prevalent? And she said, um, your average researcher is lazy. They do it because it's, it's, an it's an accepted standard. If you do it that way, no one's going to question it. So it's, it's the easy button. It's the easy way out. Um, that's the way we've always done it. You know, all those things that are just kind of excuses. Well, thank you so much for this conversation today. I'm really, really glad that we got to have an episode or possibly two episodes on this topic. <laughs> well, there's a lot of meat on that phone, but <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, but uh, let's, get our head, let's get our heads around it the right way and let's make a difference. Yes. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, please like, follow, subscribe. I'll link the ebook too if you're interested in that for learning more about this um, topic on the cosmetics angle. And keep on living the culture of life. God bless. God bless. Thank you very much. Thank you.